podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to the Liverpool Groove. Today, I am delighted to say that I am joined by former Liverpool goalkeeper, Chris Kirkland. Chris, thank you ever so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. No, my pleasure, mate. Thanks. Um, so it's very fitting, I think, that you're coming onto the podcast, you know, 22 years, nearly to the day that you signed for Liverpool. Um, yeah. Which, you know, sorry to say, it's 22 years ago that uh, must make you feel a bit old, but <laughs> um, we will come on to that shortly. Um, obviously, you grew up in Leicester, but you've always been a Liverpool fan. What was your first memory of watching Liverpool? 1988, when I was seven, I used to stand on the cop. Uh, I think it was Nottingham Forest. Um, I think it was five nearly, if I can remember right. It was around November time. Uh, but that was my first, yeah, that was my third, but always been a red. Um, got all the kit, the shin pads when I was younger, every Christmas, birthday, near enough. And then, yeah, my dad took me up. We got the bus up from Hinkley, um, the supporters' bus from Hinkley outside a cafe. Took me up to Anfield the first time and they were just the best days ever. When Whenever they could afford it, we would go up and, you know, it takes six hours up on the bus, uh, six hours back, but they were the best days ever. And, yeah, and then to, like you said, 22 years yesterday, um, somebody sent me a message in the morning. I didn't, because you forget as the years go on sort of thing and, I can't. I can't believe it's twenty-two years. It's um, <laughs> yeah. It just makes you certainly feel older, but it makes you think. Oh, I wish I could go back to that day. Um, yeah. But I think everyone thinks that at certain points in their life. But yeah, listen, it was a dream. It was a dream come true to be a Liverpool fan and then to to sign for the club um, and play for the club and now to still be involved and live in the area still is is uh, is amazing for us. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's. Some some journey, and you know, it's one only very few people can sort of can you know relate to. Um, so to be able to do it yourself must have been amazing for you. <laughs> who who were some of your footballing heroes growing up? Um, John Barnes, obviously. Uh, I think it was first when he when he was at Watford, and then obviously when he went to Liverpool. And but Steve Grizovich for me, really, when I was at Coventry. Um. From 14, 15, I started training with with Coventry uh, and he was the first team goalkeeper. And then when I signed youth team at Coventry, um, he, just the way he worked, the way he conducted himself, you know, because back then you we stayed in the lodge, which is where the first team trained, so it was a bit different back then. And we had to do all the jobs for the first team, which loved doing clean boots, clean cars. I was cleaning Dion Dublin's car, Richard Shaw. Big Oggies, and I'm talking about back then. The cars were like I don't know if you remember the old Mercedes, and bit like they were like 50 foot long, <laughs> and they were like verses. So it took us, but it was it. I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, I think that's what they miss these days. I think you know I go into I, I see some youth teams and academies, and I know things have, have changed and the times change, and you have to sometimes. But uh, I want I think it would do a lot of the the youngsters these days good to to do what we did when we were kids. Uh, in the academy, um, as I said, all the jobs, clean the footballs, everything. But we were in and around it. So I seen Oggy, the way he worked. He was the first in, last out every day. Um, his attitude, you know, the respect he got off other people and the respect he gave to people as well. And and that's that's how I thought, well, that, that's the way you have to be, not, ju- not just as a footballer, but as a, as a person as well. So I was very lucky. I had Gordon Strachan. Jim Blythe was my goalie coach. So... You know, from an early age, I'd Gary McAllister was there, Paul Williams, Richard Shaw, David Burrows, 
you know, there was a lot of senior pros there that were just fantastic role models for me. And uh, I was very lucky. I've always said this, very lucky. Yeah. Obviously, as you were breaking through in the Coventry first team, uh, Magnus Hedman was the first choice goalkeeper at the time. What what was he like to sort of train alongside and be around? He was great with me. He really was. So, Tiogi was coming to the end. Magnus was there. We had Morton Hillgard as well. Um, but Magnus was amazing. He was. He was. He's never had any issues. I used to room with him. He used to bloody snore though. Um, so I had to. I had to ask. I actually asked to ask to move rooms um, to a single room because I. I just said, listen. I, he, he just. He, it's the loudest snore I've ever heard. He just kept me up all night. And he used to tell me throw. He said just throw something at me. Throw something at me. And I'm thinking. I'm 17, 18. I'm getting Sweden's number one. Uh, to tell me to throw something at him during the night. I thought, I can't do that. Like I just thought, That's a, there's no way I can do that. So in the end, I said, listen, mate, I've, I've got to move rooms. And then the move, the move in the end, but he <laughs> used to pay the room bill. He, he was great. Even when I took his place, he was he, he was never anything but but brilliant towards me. Yeah, so was he like very encouraging, encouraging yeah. of, your, of your development yeah. and things like that, was he? Gutted, but... He never gave me any issue. Always there for advice, or I could always go to him even when I was playing in his in his place. He was, he was, uh, he was spot on with us. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, so obviously, as you mentioned, you joined Liverpool two thousand and one uh, for the then British record fee of six million pounds, which saying it today sounds mad. In fairness, um, <laughs> can you remember the feelings that you had when you heard Liverpool wanted to sign you? Everything petrified, um, nervous, excited, but yeah, I mean, I was eight, well, I was eighteen, nineteen, no, nineteen, twenty, coming up to bed. I've always been a home person, and and that was the biggest thing: leaving home, thinking, going up to Liverpool, leaving home. Uh, I was I was number one at Coventry, you know, I was I was happy there, um, but it was it was the only club I'd have left for, and I was at the I was at Highfield Road when the bid came in. And I was in a health and safety meeting with the youth team because I was still involved with with the youth team. And Gordon Strachan just popped his head around the door, and I knew it was coming because uh, somebody was telling me to be ready. Um, an agent who was looking after was saying, "Look, the bid's coming today. Just be ready. Have your bags packed." So my bags were packed at home, um, and I just froze. I just went into his office, and he said, "You know, we've had a bid. We don't want to lose you. We don't have to sell you." Um, but we're going to leave it up to you because we know you're a Liverpool fan. What do you want to do? And I just thought, I, 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 I don't know. Honestly, I was like, oh my God. And he went, and it was at, Oggy was actually at the ground. He said, look, Oggy's here. Do you want me to bring him in? So Oggy, Oggy come in and just sat down and Gordon said, look, we've had a bit off Liverpool for Chris. And he's a little bit, you know, he's, he's a little bit um, nervous. And Oggy just looked at us and went, get in your car and get up the M6 to Liverpool. He says, you won't regret it. He says, you know, you deserve to be there. You're good enough to be there. He says, what are you waiting for? And, and as soon as he said that, I went, okay, I'll, I'll go up and went up to Liverpool, did all the medical and, and signed the day after on deadline day. Yeah. It's an incredible story. That it happened that fast. Um, I, I read earlier that Arsenal were also linked to it yet at the time, but was it just, was it only ever going to be Liverpool or nothing? Always Liverpool or nothing. Yeah. There was a, there was a few teams interested and, um, but Liverpool come up with the money, and but even if the others would have bid more, I wouldn't have gone to them. It would have it would have been Liverpool, or I would have stayed at Coventry. Yeah. Did you feel any pressure at all for the price tag, or is that not something you thought about? When you're younger, mate, you're not. You're not. You're not. All I wanted to do was train, uh, being every day. I was more or less first in every day. Last to leave, like Oggy taught me. 
Um, I just wanted to train and train and train after training I'd be in the gym and no I didn't feel the pressure you don't when you're younger it's not until I think I first started to feel the pressure more when you sort of slow down your body slows down so when I got to around 30 that's when you start to notice that your your reactions are not as quick as they once were your your body's not recovering as quick as it once did uh, but when I was younger than that you just, you, you're fearless you just you don't think about anything what you want to do is play train play train play in the reserves play in the first team be on the bench you just want to do it all yeah. Um, so obviously you joined the same day as yet to do that. What was what was he like in training? What was he like with you? Well, very quickly I thought, my God, I'm not going to play here. Um, I'm never going to get in because he was awesome. He, he he was he was awesome when he first come and in training in games he was just steady Eddie. I room with his jersey again. Um, great bloke. We gone weird it off straight away. Um, but I thought, my God, it's going to take some to shift this guy because he's he's brilliant. And uh, obviously had a couple of injuries, but when I, when he obviously the the Manu game was was when Jersey saw you know that that really hit him hard. What happened with, in the Manu game, and I got my chance, and and just unfortunately when I when I got a run of games, the the injuries, the serious injuries hit me all in one go, sort of thing, one after the other. Yeah, well, I mean, it brings me perfectly onto that. You were in a great run of form, uh, playing a lot of games. You got the injury just before the two thousand and three League Cup final. Um, which obviously massive disappointment for you. Um, I I was reading earlier today that so Gerard Ulier, he gave you his winners medal. Is that right? He did, yeah, yeah. Just, that just shows the man he is. Uh, he's, he, you know, he signed me, owed him everything, but it weren't just a football manager. He was a he was a proper person, proper human being. Cared for his players, cared for our families. Always asking how how your family is, how, how Leona was, not my, my girlfriend, then wife now, obviously, but always wanted to know that you were happy off the pitch because he knew that if you were, then you would perform better on it and, and vice versa. So he was just, yeah, he'd come up to us, gave us his medal. Uh, didn't expect it, but wasn't surprised because that's just the way he was. He was he was, he was, was a proper, proper man and he's sorely missed to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did that, Did obviously when you get a serious injury, you must have some fears in the back of your mind that you you know the might the club might be looking to to replace you or you mightn't get as much game time coming back from an injury. Did that gesture from Gerard Uli did that allay any fears that you might have had? Yeah, well, when I did my knee, so when I did my knee down at Crystal Palace, uh, we flew back and he sat me next to him on the plane at the front and said, "Right, we'll we'll give you a new deal." I still had four years left on my contract, and he said, um, "He says no, he says we're going to look after you." Uh, you'll come back from this, you'll be stronger. And I think two days after that, I signed a new six-year deal. So again, just the just the magnitude of the man and the club as well. Listen, Liverpool have always been, uh, you know, everybody knows that Liverpool do things the right way on and off the pitch. And, and that just proved it again, just what a class act the club is and what a class act uh, Gerard Hullier was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a little while back, we had the... Gregory Vignal on the podcast and he absolutely echoed them, those sentiments and like, you know, the man Gerard Hulier was just levels above anything that he's ever met in his life. And yeah, it was just it was a very sad day for everyone. Um fans and obviously yourself and other players when when he did pass. Yeah, I went to his I went to the memorial at Anfield because again there weren't I think there was only thirty or forty people allowed to go because it was during obviously the, the, the COVID times and stuff. So it's such a shame, really, because um, if everything was normal and COVID wasn't a thing, and that that stadium would have been packed out, 
for his memorial because that you know that's how well liked and loved he was by by everybody and it's such a such a shame i know that there was there was a little bit after that when the fans come back in but that's such a shame that he, that we couldn't celebrate his life properly with a packed out anfield for his memorial because he yeah. did he, if anyone deserved it he did 100% yeah absolutely um so similar to 2003 2005 champions league final coming up um, again, you missed that game through injury. I don't, I don't know whether it would have been yourself or Scott on Scott Carson on the bench anyway. But um, after that, I believe again Scott Carson offered you his winners medal, but you refused that one. What was the story yeah. of that one? Yeah, because we've always been mates, me and Scott, and yeah, he did. He said, "Look, you played in the early games," but I said, "Listen, so have you. You're here today. You know you deserve it." And there was a lot of medals that went missing. There was meant to be more. We was meant to get one particularly if you'd played in the earlier rounds and, and obviously the Olympiacos game. But don't know what happened to them. The story is that they, 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 a lot of the, the, the... Obviously, Rafa had a lot of staff and uh, a lot of the medals went went walkies sort of thing and I think got put into pockets. And a lot of us... Uh, well, me, I think there's a few of us that didn't, didn't end up getting medals, which was which was disappointing. But, um, you know, that wouldn't have happened under under Gerard's, under Gerard's tenure, tenure, that's for sure. But... Listen, that's gone now, and and but it, I get asked all the time. Yeah, I was gutted, but when you don't play in the final, even if you're playing every game before it and the semi-finals and stuff, if you don't play in that actual final, you don't really deserve. You, you, I, I I always thought I didn't really deserve it anyway because the final is a one-off game. No matter what's happened before to get there, uh, the final is that one game, win or lose, where you end up getting a medal or not. So. I didn't really feel like I deserved it, but it would have been nice to have one. Yeah. Was that the difference then with 2003? Obviously, you played every game in the run-up to the final in 2003, with the exception of the final. Is that Was that the difference in them two scenarios for you, do you think? Again, I mean, again, it, like I said, even the 2003 final, it's, if you don't play in the final, it always leaves a little bit of... Um, you know, you always don't think you you fully deserve that medal because you've not played in the final. That's the best one. People that's, shouldn't say things like that, but I think if you ask most footballers, if they don't play in that actual final, then um, I think a lot of them feel the same. Yeah. No, that's a, I suppose that's a fair point, unless your name's John Terry and you go up in a full kit, I suppose. <laughs> um, obviously, after leaving Liverpool, you'd had arguably your best spell of your career at Wigan. Um, what was your time at Wigan like? Did you, how much did you enjoy that? Uh, yeah, like you said, it was probably the best I played. Um, the, deal, the deal nearly didn't get done because um, Rafa was messing around again. Um, so I, I actually went to Wigan um, to sign on the day and I was, they, they made me wait, not Wigan, but Rafa made us wait in the canteen at Wigan for two days. I wasn't allowed to train. I wasn't to deal because he was still messing around with the deal. And he was brilliant from Paul Jaw, really, because he was a manager. And um, I was training in the gym, but I couldn't go out and train. So I'm not signed from nothing was agreed yet, even though it was all agreed. And then Rafa shifted it last minute. So Paul Jaw, like after two days, I was sat in, literally sat in the canteen both days. And he, he just come down and said, right, we, I've had enough of this. He said, just just go with it. Come upstairs. I want you to hear what I'm dealing with. So I went up, Paul Jaw took me into his office and, and he, I listened to the first conversation. I won't mention any names. He was on the other end of the phone, but they were, they were messing around. 
And then he rang up uh, Frank Mac- um, Frank McFarland, who was like the the go between. And he just rang up Frank and put put it on loudspeaker. And he told me to be quiet. Frank didn't know I was on the phone. And Paul just said, "Right." He says, "This has gone on long enough." Frank. He said, "This either gets done in the next ten minutes, or I'm sending Chris back down the M58." And Paul Joe was looking at me, going, "I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that." But Frank, he went, "No, listen." He says, "I know the messing around." He says, "Give me two minutes." And and Paul went, "I'm being serious. If you don't come back on the phone in two minutes and say the deal's done, you can have him. I'm sending. I'll drive him back down myself to the 58." And uh, Frankie went no, and then literally two minutes later, the phone went, and it was Frank saying, "Yeah, right, everything's done, everything's agreed, and it was done." But that was just Rafa being Rafa and thinking that he was. That was just him trying to say, "Well, you'll sign when I say you'll sign," uh, and not before it. But Paul Joel was brilliant with it, and yeah, but it just it just goes to show, as I said again, you know, I think most people have said have asked me about Rafa, and I think a lot of players have said the same. He had no man management skills at all. It was all just football, football, football with him. But listening to it on the other end of the phone was um, was certainly something I'll never forget with the, with the way he was. Yeah, yeah, it must have been eye opening for you because obviously, as a player, I suppose you don't really you're not privy to that side of things, are you? Really, so. But Paul was brilliant. So he said, "Listen, even if they don't come back in five minutes, he said we're still signing you." But just, yeah, I'm putting the pressure on them now. And it got sorted. And, yeah, my t- everything just clicked. From, I literally got off that phone call. He said, right, get your training kit on, go outside. And from the first session, everything just clicked into place. And it was the best I played over probably four years, 2006, 2010. And then Roberto uh, Martinez come in and things changed again. But, yeah, that spell from 2006, 2010 was was the best in my career. And, um, yeah, I had a, I had a Brilliant time at Wigan for them four years. The last two weren't so great. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a good club, really good club. We had some, we had some good players, but we had a brilliant team spirit, which which um, you know I think one season we finished ninth or eighth or ninth, which was unheard of for Wigan. Yeah, I think at the time when Wigan first came up, everyone just expected them to go straight back down, and I think it was the same every season until they did actually go down. They were just favourites every season and. Like you said, that sort of never say die attitude that was clearly instilled in in the players and things like that. Because yeah, you've had some great players, but then there was other players who've been at other clubs and it hasn't worked for them. And I thought, yeah, just like say, I think it's just man management and just installing that belief. It is. Well, Paul Joe was there, and then Steve Bruce come in, and I've got nothing but great things to say about him. He just Eric Black was his assistant, and and under him was the best I played played in my career and certainly a lot of the other lads as well. Uh, Big S was there, obviously, and Kev Kilbaham. We had so many players, but he just got his clicking. He just got us Wilson Palacios, Antonio Valencia. We just had a, we had a very good team and an even better dressing room. Yeah. Obviously, your spell at Wigan resulted in your only England cap. How proud of a moment was that for you? Yeah, again, I, I get asked this all the time. It's not my proudest moment. My proudest moment will always be signing for Liverpool. You know, the team you supported and stood on the coppers, that'll never be topped in my debut for Liverpool. But yeah, playing for England was great. Um, but it was a long time coming. I'd been in squads and not played and then missed out through injury. So I was I was just glad to get it out of the way because it was always on people's people's talk and whenever squads got announced and stuff so it was, it was good just to get the game and to play it and then uh, listen I didn't make any more appearances after that unfortunately but um, yeah pr- proud moment uh, it would have been better if it was at Anfield I'd have made my debut instead of Old Trafford but it was it was a proud moment but 
nothing will ever, ever be um, signing for Liverpool and playing for Liverpool. Yeah. Obviously, I, I imagine uh, your dad was was really happy when you're there, when you made the England debut. Yeah, there was a few. So there was a few in, in, involved with the bet. Um, I didn't know about the bet until the day before the game. I never knew who put it on. So right. he kept it in his pants drawer for 13 years, a little betting slip. Um, but I found out the day before off the press, the press somehow got hold of it. Uh, rang my dad and he said, yeah, it's true. He said, but he said, I don't care even if you don't play. He said, just just proud to see you playing for Liverpool and this will be a bonus. But yeah, there was a few of them that got paid out, which was great. Yeah. Um, so since retiring, you've been involved in, in some coaching. Um, obviously, you, I think your first little coaching spell was at Port Vale with Michael Brown. Yeah, um, Brownie. Yeah. So I went down there, did bits, enjoyed it, enjoyed it. Um, and then... I think Brownie left and yeah, it was just the traveling and stuff like that. And I wasn't in great headspace then as well. So uh, I wanted something closer to home. So Liverpool, uh, Liverpool women's, I was a goalie coach there. And then Neil Redfern left and sort of me and Vicky took on the reins there, which was great experience. And obviously now the women's game has gone, has gone through the roof, which is great. And, in you know, in, firmly in the spotlight now and, and, you know, it's inspiring a lot of, a lot of ladies and a lot of girls coming off. That's where I've been tonight. I was it was a girls' tournament tonight over in Tiber, top step for suicide awareness. So mm. that you know, the girls' games now is 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 skyrocketed and it's brilliant to see. But yeah, bits and that. I was doing bits at Tranmere as well. Tranmere lost their goalie coach, and I was sort of covering for both as well. Which was Mickey Mellon was there, great bloke, and got on great with him. And I was covering with that. And so yeah, I wanted to keep wanted to keep involved with football. Um, but then, obviously, with the addiction side of stuff and mental health, which we'll probably talk about in a bit, it was just I just couldn't concentrate, and I just felt as though I wasn't I wasn't giving them the service that they needed, and and I wasn't giving them you know my full commitment, even though I was there and stuff like that. I just, my mind was elsewhere, so I had to I had to walk away from it in the end, and and obviously get help, which which I went and did, and um, in two thousand nineteen, and then I then I but then I I got I got well and got off the, the, the painkillers and stuff. And then I thought, right, what do I want to do now? Because you need a purpose to get up in the mornings. You need a you need a structure, especially being a, you know, everyone always says it and it's well known being a footballer and the structure it gives you. When, once that's gone, it's 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 a massive void to, to fill in. It's it's scaring doors. And that's why a lot of play, ex-players and that are in, are in a lot of trouble, you know, mentally and, and whatnot. So I thought, well, what can I do? And, and the foundation, the foundation come up and started doing a few coaching sessions there and thought that this is all the foundation is. It's football, but it's not. It's so much more. And, you know, I'd lived in the area 20 years, but I had no idea what the Liverpool Foundation did and supporting families and, you know, um, putting disability sessions on and, and employment. And it's just incredible. And I thought that, that that's what I want to do. And that's what I'm still doing to this day. And absolutely, absolutely love it all. Yeah, um, have you got any plans to to go back into any coaching side of things anytime soon? Not anytime soon, no. Um, but listen, once it's difficult because once once football's all you've done and you've known it's. Um, I, I never rule anything out, but I'm certainly love doing what I'm doing with the foundation now. I love the the variety of the stuff I do, different things, going to things, representing the foundation, which is my role as as like an ambassador for them. Um, and for now, no desire to go back into it. But 
yeah, I'd imagine there'll there'll probably come a day where I might want to, but I, I honestly, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So you mentioned that. Well, then that'll be different. <laughs> yeah. I'll drop everything for that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you mentioned it there about obviously the the painkiller addiction, and you've been very open about that the last twelve months or so. How did opening up about all of that help help you overcome it? Um, well, I went. Listen, I I, I started them I mean, in two thousand and twelve. So when I left Wigan and just travelling to and from Sheffield, change of routine, everything like that. I was in the car long hours, and um, I got older some because I had a little tweak before the first game, and and I got older some and thought, oh great, this made me feel brilliant. This, and so I took them. Um, and it just gradually progressed. I retired in two thousand and sixteen through that. Got help off the PFA. Um, through retired through mental health, but obviously the tablets sent me down that road because they just messed me up completely. Got off them um, for about a year, then started to miss football, miss the routine. Um, was tempted to try and make a comeback, tried to, but I just when you've been out of the game a year and you're getting older, you know, I was nearly thirty six, my body just couldn't couldn't do it, and so that was another knock. And I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I went back on them stupidly. Um, and then I went to rehab and admitted I had a real problem to the wife in 2019. Went to rehab, but again, didn't tell anyone. Um, it was through mental health I was in there, but obviously the main thing was addiction. Got come out of there and everything was good again. Started the stuff with the foundation. Everything was great. And then lockdown hit um, in 2020. And obviously, listen, it was just the most horrendous time for everyone, weren't it? It was just yeah. went through and obviously went back on them. Uh, I think everyone did things that needed to get them through that that COVID time, which was which was horrible times. Went back on them and then got really bad again. And then it was what nearly what we need now eighteen half eighteen and a half months ago. Um, yeah, just broke down and, and said to the wife and my friend, "Look, I'm I'm hooked again. I'm bad. Um, and I need help again." So, but this time, what I did was like the time I went away in 2019. They said, "Right, you've got to be open. You've got to tell people. You can't keep it to yourself." But I never did that when I come out of rehab. It was just the wife that knew and, and a couple of friends, and that's probably why I went back on them because I could get away with it. But this time, we said, "Right, you know, if I don't stop now, they're going to kill me." Simple as that. I was taking ridiculous amounts, so we put things in place. So my wife's got drug tests in the in the in the room there. She can test me anytime she wants. The, the 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 doctors can't speak to me unless my wife is present, either in the room or on the phone. The 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 mailman, the postman knows never to give me um, envelopes or parcels because I was getting them off the internet. So we put all the things in place to to hopefully not fail this time. And uh, the drug tests are the biggest things, knowing that I can't get away with it now because she would. She can test me any time, and my wife would know instantly if I'd if I'd gone back on them. So that's always in my mind, and that's the biggest thing that's that stopped me stopped me doing it for for nineteen months now, and hopefully hopefully always will. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know. yeah, but coming out and telling the world, and that wasn't for sympathy or anything. It was for, I, I just felt as I had a something that was holding me back to 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 get off them and kick the habit, and I just thought, right, well. If everybody knows, I'll feel as though there's eyes on me all the time, and that will that will prevent me from doing it again. Because I'll be thinking, "Oh, they'll know, or they'll know, or they might notice some it." Or um, so that's why I did that, and and we set things up, and thankfully it's it's worked up to now. Yeah, I mean, massive credit for you for 
know, managing to stay clean for so long at the moment and long may continue. But um, a lot of help, though. It's, like I said, I've tried to do it on my own many times, but it's my wife, my friends, work have been great. The, the club have been amazing. The foundation have been amazing. Um, it's knowing that I've got that support around me, Parkland Place, the rehab place I went to, have been unreal. So I've got people I can turn to now and needed them, you know, because it's not been easy. Uh, the last six months have got obviously easy, but the first few months are horrendous. Um, but then you, you learn to you learn to live without them then and, you know, you, you go back to your normal self. I won't say normal self, but... Yeah. Um, I was looking at an interview done with Billy Moore yesterday, um, obviously talking predominantly about the addiction. And I think one of the things that, that stuck with me from that was you saying um, your daughter is, is scared to take just the, the likes of paracetamol and things like that. And I can imagine that one, something like that really sort of cut deep for, for what you were going through. It does, yeah. She uh, she said, yeah. So we were noticing she'd have headaches and, and obviously the girls couldn't go through stages, don't they, with the period starting and all that sort of stuff. So they get headaches and she just wouldn't take anything. We said, look, just have paracetamol. And she was like, no, I don't want it, don't want it. And then we said, look, what is it? Because she went, it's because you got, I don't want to get, you know, you got hooked on them. I don't want to get hooked on anything. So, yeah, that was, a, that was a, again, a massive motivation for me to, to make sure I never did it again. Having, you know, daughter say that to us was, was another thing that I needed to, to keep us on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And through you opening up, have you had anybody come to you for advice and, or even to say you, you know, you opening up has, has helped me realise that yeah. I was in a bad place or anything like that? Yeah, it's listen, it's it's a it's um yeah, I've had I've had yeah, loads, loads and loads and loads and, and people that I'm close to that I had no idea as well. But yeah, I've had loads of messages and DMs and I try to get back to as many as I can, but the, the amount of messages I get, it's almost impossible sometimes. But I try to get back to as many as I can and give them advice and you know, they ask out how did you manage to stop? So I tell them all the things I've just told you about the drug test and you know, ice baths, um, supreme C B D oil's been brilliant for me as well when I come off. Um, for withdrawals, but telling people being open and not hiding it because with addiction, if there's a way you can hide it and think you can get away with it again, then you will. Simple as that. More th- more barriers you can put up, and the more preventive measures you can put up, the better chance. And that's what I tell people: you, you've got to be open. And, and a lot of them say, "Well, I can't tell my wife, I can't tell my friends." You're going to fail if you don't. And that's why I say I, I tell them because I, I did, I failed, you know, twice. I didn't tell anyone and thought I could do it myself. And it's addiction's just too strong to, to to listen. Some people, I'm sure, have done it on their own and got through it and amazing, but I couldn't. You know, it's just it's just too strong. It was too strong of a pull for me to to not be able to do it, and that's why I needed other people to help me do it. And thankfully, I got that when I needed it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's great to hear. And as I say, you know, fantastic being able to stay stay off it for so long and I hope you you're able to continue down that down that path because um again one of the things and I remember hearing on the Billy Moore podcast was um you saying you were looking at pictures of yourself from Jordan at times of of being addicted to it and at the time you think you know you think I'm fine there's nothing wrong and then you sort of see a picture and you it again it's an eye opener for you. And and, and my you know my wife kicks herself saying what well, how could I not see that? You know, she looks at pictures when we're obviously doing stuff and friends as well. And yeah, you, you can see it. You can, you know, you go back to um, 19 months past and before that, 
you can you can just see the difference. And you know, a lot of people have said, "Oh, they're, they're kicking themselves for not spotting it." But you're sneaky. You hide things with addiction. You lie, you know, and because that's what it does to you. But you know, I look back now, and and that's how I know now the world will know if if I suddenly started, people will be able to tell now because they know what to look for. And and again, that's the advice I give to other people as well. You you've got to be honest with yourself, but you've got to be honest with people around you, and. and and that's the only way you can you can help and fight it and and I won't say beat it because I don't think you ever beat it but you you learn to uh, you learn a different way. Yeah. Um. So I know you've been involved with uh, walking walking's brilliant. Yeah, um, I'll just pop on there. That weren't deliberate. I've got, <laughs> wasn't deliberate, but I'm always I'm always in the tops. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah. It's a, that was where I first opened up actually. Well, that the lads, because obviously I knew the lads, and we were on a, we did the three peaks, and it was on the last leg of that, the Snowden leg, and um, I just we we had it, we had a break five minutes, and somebody noticed from it, and and then I just let it all out, then and, and none of them knew, and that was the first time they found out. But again, the support they've gave us, we're together again on this Wednesday coming up. We've got a charity golf day in Doncaster, and yeah, um, we all. Yeah, it's it's a br- amazing group of of people, and we love it when we all get together. But that's when I told them, and they had they had no idea, no idea at all. Yeah. Um, another one you mentioned there was obviously Supreme CBD. Obviously, uh, yeah. I can I can imagine that's helped with, um, you know, some of the pains and niggles you've got from your playing days. But you've mentioned how it helps with the uh, things like anxiety and helping you with your sleep as, as well. But just how much has it? actually help you were a bit sceptical of it at first yeah of course you are listen somebody tells you this and you think no that, that can't do that and I tried a lot of oils before I tried a lot of CBD stuff before when I tried to stop uh, but they just I just couldn't take to them but then when I knew I was going to go through withdrawals and go cold turkey and I'd been using the CBD oil but not using it properly because I was still taking tablets and stuff so I thought, right, I'm going to need that. So I got the strongest dose, and and that did help us through the uh, help us get through the withdrawals. Even still, it was still I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. The withdrawals. It was you know all the all the pictures and the the videos you see of people in the corner and shaking and sweating and being sick. That was me for about six five six days in the bedroom. Um, but the oil certainly helped calm me down. The anxiety wise. Um, so yeah, without that, it'd have been even worse, which I can hardly imagine. So now, listen, I don't use it all the time. I see, I get a few messages saying, "Well, you just swap one, um, one addiction for another," but <laughs> there's nothing in Supreme C. There's no, you can't get addicted to it. There's no, it's not. There's no THC in it like there is in America. You know, it's not the stuff that gets you high. This yeah. is all natural. So you know, I can use it. I can go two, three, four weeks without using it. But I know now when I start to feel anxious, you, you you know yourself when you start to get a little bit built up and you can you you go a little bit quieter and stuff like that, or you got something coming up that you're a bit a little bit unsure about. I know exactly when I need to take it now and when I don't need it. But it has been a huge help, not just to me. I got thousands of messages. Again, can't get back to everyone, but I just said, listen, it might not work for you. Give it a go. What else you got to lose? And I'd say ninety-five percent of people that have gone to it have found massive benefits for all kinds of different, uh, you know, not just addictions, anxiety, depression, um, you know, a lot of skin problems as well. People are using it for the rubs and stuff, and it's been it's been it's certainly helped me and a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, Anthony, Anthony Father pushes it a lot on on Twitter and social media and. For, for good cause, obviously, you know, talking yourself and on Paul Merson's involved and 
Um, there's just seems to be more and more people getting involved with it on a sort of weekly basis. Yeah, I'm not saying it'd be legal. It's legal now, but listen, the only reason it's not on, um, you can't get it is because pharmaceutical uh, pharmaceutical companies will go bankrupt. They'll go bust because if this stuff becomes available on the NHS, which it should be, because it's doing, it's it's helping so many people. Like I said, with so many different things, different problems. But as I said, the pharmaceutical companies will never allow it because the government gets too much money from that and all that sort of stuff. So, but uh, a lot more people are turning towards it now, and Anthony's Anthony's doing an amazing job of of getting it out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of social media and fans. You know, you've got access to players and managers and just everyone involved in football quite easily these days. A lot of fans like to criticise players on social media for being injured all the time. Um, what would you say to the fans that do criticise players for getting injured? But also, what would you say to sort of the players who, you know, are reading these messages and think and well, you know, obviously thinking the worst? Well, I was never on social media when I played. It was only when I when I finished, and I, I was glad I wasn't because I, a lot of lads were, and you, you could see them reading stuff, and it did affect them massively. Um, because no matter how many brilliant ones you get, how many amazing messages you get, it's always the one that you remember that's the bad one. That's just the way the human brain works. You always remember the bad one and think, why have they said that for? All the others are saying this, but they're saying that. And that's the one you focus on. So, yeah, listen, nobody means to be injured. Nobody wants to be injured. Um, so just think before you put things, you know, just 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 think, like I said, and it, social media can be a, a brilliant place for, for promoting things, for for doing the right and, and trying to help people, but it, it can be an absolute toxic place as well. Um, and these idiots that just go on it to abuse people, you know, I, I just can't get my head around it, but that, they'll never change. The, that, it'll never change. Um, but yeah, for, for lads that are on it, and if you, you know, you can block people, obviously, but um, just just be very careful on it because it does cause a lot of lot of problems for for a lot of people. Yeah. Definitely. Um, final one to finish on then. Um, Alison, we all know how good he is. For you, where does he rank? One in terms of the best in the world, or two in terms of the best keepers you've ever seen? He, well, he's the best in the world for me now, without a doubt. He has been consistently for for quite you know a couple of seasons now, at least. Um, it's it's listen. It's hard. It's hard to compare from from past keepers because it's different times and it's different. It's like people saying that you know the team of the eighties uh, when Liverpool won the league in two thousand nineteen, they'd beat um, the, the Champions League and that they'd they'd beat the team of the eighties. I just don't like it because it's two separate eras. Each era has got legendary status and rightly so. Um, so it's very different. Listen, for me, we're very lucky to have him. And hopefully we'll have him for a long, long time to come. And there's nobody better out there than him. A lot of credit goes to John Akterberg as well, you know, because since he's come to the club, he's got better. There's no doubt about that. He's better now than when he first come. And that comes down to playing with better players, um, but also the training, the goalkeeper training. So John Akterberg's done an amazing job with him. I know Jack's there as well. I think they've got Tafferell now as well, but John deserves a lot of credit, but he's just, He's, I mean, I went. I've been down to watch him train a, um, a couple of times, and I took my daughter down once, and and we were just watching it, and we were just like, we didn't speak, we just like watched, and we were like that. And then we got in the car after, and we were like, have we actually just seen what we've just seen. He was just, 
what I witnessed was just superhuman. That's all I can say. Like, he was just superhuman, saves, catching it. But everything he was like, everything was sticking. He just, it, the biggest compliment I can give him, people ask, well, why is he so good? He, he makes the hard things look easy and he makes the easy things look easy. Yeah. Uh, and that's the biggest compliment I can I can make him. He's just a, a brilliant goalkeeper. And uh, where will he go down in Liverpool's history? I'm not going to say that. I'll let other people say that. I'm, I'm certainly not going to get involved with that. We're just very lucky to. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just again, I, I said final one, but this will be the final one. Obviously, it's deadline day. There's a lot of rumours swirling around. Um, you know, the rumours of Mohamed Salah, the bid from Saudi Arabia. If the rumours are true and they're going to offer close to 200 million, if the decision was yours, putting you on the spot a little bit, I apologise, but if the decision but, was yours, would you accept that? As a fan, no, I, I wouldn't. No, and I don't think any fan would, but listen, we know it's a business and it'll come down to what the, the owners of the club say. I'd imagine if they were, you know, listen, I don't see how any any team can turn down £200 million. I just think it's, you know, I, I, I just, yeah, I'm I'm worried. Um, obviously, it's 11 o'clock, the deadline shuts and I think they've got another week in there or 10 days or something in that in that league. Yeah, they can... yeah if, you, if you ask me now, I think I think he'll be gone. I think he'll go. It's just too much, you know. And for him, it, it just suits him down to the ground, doesn't it? It's his culture. Um, you know, it's, I just think for him, it, there's, there's too much noise around it for it not to be, um, yeah, not for it to get done, I think, unfortunately. But it'll be, listen, it'll be a, if he does go, it'll be a massive, massive loss. And what, who do you, you can't replace him, can you? Is it, no. People say, who do you get to replace him? You, you can't replace him. Simple as that. There's some players you just cannot replace. But football moves on. Life moves on. Football moves on and it will do again. Just because it's Mohamed Salah, you know, football's that way. It'll move on. And uh, But yeah, I'm, I'm certainly, I don't want to turn the TV on. I don't know if you've seen that. I don't want to turn the TV back on, but I, I'd be I'd be very surprised if it didn't get done within the next hour long. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head, really. I think every fan is probably just hoping and playing doesn't go through. But like I said, it's a business and that's yeah. the way the owners are going to look at it from a business. And he's 31 now. He's 31. So, you know, you're getting offered 200 million for a 31-year-old, you know, unless you're probably Lionel Messi, then... Um, I just, I just, I just don't see how that can be can be turned down. Unfortunately, no, sadly. But uh, let's let's open today. Eh? But now, um, Chris, thank you ever so much again for taking time to no come problem. on and have a chat with me. It's been a pleasure. No worries, mate. Any time. Sports Social Podcast Network.